There we go. Here we are, week three of our sermon series in the fear of God. Um, one of the things that we've seen thus far throughout our series um, has been that there are different kinds of fear. And the fear has different aspects, um, some of which we have as Christians and some of which we, we don't. Um, this week, I was caused to reflect on how one of the worst fears that we can have, and maybe I'm the only one here, but I doubt it, one of the worst fears that we can have is the fear of disappointing somebody. Do you ever get that one? I hate that one. Um, I have a distinct memory burnt into my soul from when I was in grade four. I uh, sometimes find myself waking up in the middle of the night to this day thinking about this memory. Um, I, I remember that we had an RE teacher, they call them something different now, but the, the religion teacher who came into our class um, and would lead us in Bible studies. And one day, this RE teacher came to class with an injury, um, something which was causing him a significant uh, amount of pain. Um, now, the teacher of our class blamed me for what happened next, even though at the time, I could not remember doing the thing that I was accused of. Um, but it, it may very well be true, and probably was, that I did do the thing. Uh, and if you think I'm absent-minded now, you should have met me as a kid, right? It's, it's possible that it was me. I was certainly the one who got in trouble, um, and I was made to wait until the end of the lesson so that the RE teacher could come and have a talk with me, um, because in the middle of the lesson, uh, some kid, probably named Matt, had reached out and touched the injury. I don't, once again, things they might not do in education anymore. For the rest of the lesson, I was forced to wait where all the bags are kept in the baggage area and in the port racks. Um, and then the, the teacher and the RE teacher came to speak to me at the end of the lesson. And do you know what that RE teacher said to me? One of the worst things imaginable. What he said was, not angry. I am disappointed. <laughs> the seething agony. <laughs> and then he said something which I think was even worse. He looked me in the eyes and he said, I forgive you. And I still lie in wake, uh, still lie in bed awake thinking about it. He could have said, I'm quite upset with you and you're a very naughty boy and I would have forgot about it by now. Do you know what I mean? The, the fear of disappointing somebody is a, is a genuine, real and meaningful kind of fear. Uh, and here we are, week three uh, in our series on the fear of God. And having established just what that means, we have now started considering the effects that a healthy fear of God is meant to have in our life. Last week we heard that the fear of God was attractive in that it draws us into worship. It turns out um, that a God who is worthy of our fear, a God who is transcendent and holy and just and righteous and, all, and almighty, um, <laughs> we can't help but love that God. That God is, is better than the small, weak uh, and unable God. This week, we are considering what it means that the fear of God is sanctifying. Sanctifying. If you don't know that word, if you're new at this, uh, it means that it makes us become holy. It changes who we are and how we behave. When we talk about salvation as Christians, that's often been described as having three distinct phases uh, in the process. Um, the problem is that our sin makes us God's enemies. It means we deserve His just judgment and punishment 
But God himself has made reconciliation possible through the provision of Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so when we come to God through faith in Jesus and what he has accomplished through that cross, our sins are forgiven and we are saved from judgment. Rather than receiving God's judgment, we're adopted into God's family. We become his children, which means that we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's what we call justification. That's the first phase of salvation. From the, from the moment that you put your faith in Jesus as Savior, from the moment you become a Christian, God declares you to be innocent of sin and acceptable to himself. You have been justified if you are a Christian. That's phase one. Phase two is sanctification. That's the process that begins immediately once you have been justified. The first thing God does is to um, give you the gift of His Holy Spirit living within us, which sets us free from bondage to sin. And the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us gives us a new nature. That new nature means that we have been saved from the power of sin. It no longer has power over us. In sanctification, what has been declared true about us in justification starts becoming true in our experience. We start to be transformed. We start to change. We start becoming more like Jesus in his moral character. We live a transformed life because we have gained a transformed nature. You're still you, but something fundamental has shifted. What has changed is what you love and what you do. That is the process of sanctification. That lasts the whole rest of your life here on earth as a Christian. The third word in this triptych is glorification, which is where we'll be saved fully and finally from even the presence of sin. But we'll need to wait for heaven for that one. Today, it is that middle bit. It is that sanctification process which we have in mind. And what we are going to discover is that the fear of God has a role to play in our sanctification. It accelerates the process and keeps it on track. The fear of God helps us in the process of transformation. In order to consider that, let's turn to our main passage for today, um, the first chapter of Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter 1. And I'll begin reading in 1 Peter 1 verse 13. First Peter 1.13 begins with, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's orient ourselves in this passage. We're right at the beginning of a letter written by the Apostle Peter to encourage multiple churches. It's not just written to one congregation. It's written to a region. Uh, during a time of significant persecution. It's written to encourage Christians to persevere in pursuing a godly life, even though things are hard. That's the purpose of this letter. And the Apostle Peter has just finished reminding everybody how we are living in a special era of time. God has revealed 
more to us about this plan of salvation that I just explained to you than the people living in the Old Testament era ever got to understand clearly. And so therefore, begins Peter, because God has blessed us so much, we are to keep the main thing the main thing. You are to set your hope fully on the grace which saved you because it is that same grace that's coming for us at the end. Do you see that? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this verse calls our justification and our glorification to mind. Phase one and phase three. With justification as a certainty and glorification as a certainty, we turn our attention to the present and back to phase two. Our sanctification from verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which just means your life on earth. He's taking the imagery of the Old Testament, applying it to our life here as Christians. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Isn't that a great part of your Bible? We could preach this for the next month and still have things to talk about. For those of you who are taking part in our Essentials course and were there last week, we talked about what the gospel-centered version of ministry looks like. This passage is a great example. Peter is calling us to do something. He's calling us to change how we live to act in a holy manner. He is speaking to people who are already Christians and he grounds that command to change in the rich soil of the gospel. It's explicitly connected. This call to change, it's grounded in our identity as the children of God. Can you see that? If you call on him as father, as obedient children... That's the promise. Adoption is the promise that when we become Christians, we are adopted into God's family. That's part of the gospel. Uh, It's aimed towards understanding God's own character as the image we are being conformed to. That the, the, The point of sanctification is not just abstract change into some impersonal standard. No, we are becoming more like our Savior in His moral perfection. He's reminding us that we were ransomed, purchased at a price, as the cost of our salvation. A price which was paid not by us, but by Jesus. And so all of that together equips us to go to war on our old nature and to engage actively with the process of our sanctification. That war 
is going to be there throughout the whole of phase two. It's the bad news. <laughs> Our old nature is a defeated foe, but doesn't it still make its presence known constantly? There is a fight for control within us between the leading of God's Holy Spirit and our old flesh nature. And Peter's call here is to not be conformed to that old voice. Don't listen to your old master. You've been set free. Don't listen to that voice with its passions. A word there that means a longing or a desire. But when combined with the idea of sin, it's a lust or a sinful desire. These passions. When you crave sin, says Peter, don't give in. Fight. Adopted as his child, being conformed to his image, ransomed by his blood, that is not who you are. You are someone else now as a believer. Now, all, all on its own, all of that is, is very important and very helpful. That's where we could spend the rest of the month. But today, we're going to give our attention to a specific theme. The fear of God and the role it plays in the process of sanctification. Let's consider that bit from verse 17. Peter says, If you call on him who's, as his father, who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. And here is our question. What is the fear being expressed here, which is so helpful in our holiness? What is it that we are afraid of that is propelling us towards Jesus? How is the fear here driving life change? There's two aspects that I can see. Let's talk about them in the order in which they appear. The first is this. It is the fear that our God judges impartially. We have to connect it, don't we? Verse 17 says... If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. They're connected. There's an immediate difficulty there. Okay, just in, in week one, we heard that if you are a Christian, if you are inside of grace, then you no longer have a fear of punishment. Explicitly, biblically stated. No doubt. Perfect love drives out all fear. That's in 1 John. And so why would we who have been perfected in love fear that he judges impartially? It's this. All Christians sin. That's a fact. It's a horrible fact. But it's a fact. There is no one who is an exception to that rule. Our hope and comfort in that is the stability that comes from grace. But there is another category of person, the person who claims to be a believer, but is not. We have to know that that exists. It is possible for me to say today, I am a Christian. And then in the details of my life, make it very clear that I am not a worshipper of the living God. And he judges 
impartially, by the same standard for everyone, without favoritism. And do, do you remember when we were reading the book of Nehemiah in chapter 5, Nehemiah talked about his life, versus uh, Nehemiah 5.15. He said, the former governors, these were other Jewish governors, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Do you understand these former governors claimed to be God's people? They claimed special status in God's plan on the basis of their Jewish heritage. They claimed to be important to God because of their position of leadership. But they did not fear God. And it was plain in their life. They lived self-indulgent lives and were crushing those in their care. The city was in ruins as a result of their failed leadership as much as anything else. Jesus himself describes the final judgment with the image of a farmer separating the sheep from the goats. The goats who do not belong to him protest. Weren't we yours? Didn't we do all of these things for you? And God's reply to them in this story is, depart from me, I never knew you. It is possible to make a false claim to salvation and the proof of that pudding will be in the life that you live. And so our fear is the genuine awareness that sin is dangerous. Because we know a gospel of grace does not mean that sin is to be played with or dismissed as irrelevant. No, it is to be dealt with. A bomb which has been disarmed is still a bomb and should be handled with care. It is still made of the explosive material which made it dangerous in the first place. Christians, when we sin, we know it's dangerous. We know that it matters. And so we run towards our Savior to be restored in order to escape that danger. That's how we respond to our sin. And so that's the fear. Security in grace should not make us complacent with sin. A realistic respect for the significance and danger of sin drives us towards holiness. Here's the second way fear is sanctifying. The second fear is the fear of wasting or of tarnishing the precious blood of Christ. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, says Peter, knowing that you were ransomed. He goes on to say, with the precious blood of Christ. Don't know about you, but this one punches me in the heart. The second fear 
The second source of reverence is an awareness which leads me to a treasuring of the price which was paid for my salvation. God has not taken away my guilt by ignoring it. It has not been overlooked. Forgiveness has come to those who believe because we have been ransomed, because a price was paid. The price of the penalty which I deserve has been paid on my behalf by another. God's justice and mercy both meet at the cross. And if you are a believer, you are blood-bought. We are reminded. That blood which has redeemed you did not come from a mere lamb or a cow. The blood which purchased us is the very blood of precious Jesus himself. That blood is precious. It is prized rightly. It is the greatest gift which we will ever receive. It is the most costly and expensive of gifts given to us by the one whom we had offended. And the one who has given it is the Most High Himself. When I, as a blood-bought ransomee, when I walk in my old nature, when I listen to that old voice, when I hear those sinful desires from within and I give in and I participate. It is like I am taking that precious blood and pouring it in the dirt. It's not true, of course. Not a drop of that blood can actually be wasted. All, all of its accomplishing purpose will be achieved. But how do we describe the relational significance of treating lightly the blood which bought us? My sin heaps shame on that blood. Here's an example. How many times recently have we heard the sad, sad story of some famous or influential Christian leader? falling into egregious sin and being caught out. I just heard about another one a few days ago. It is heartbreaking every time. When the onlooking world sees that, what does it make them think about the value of that blood? The person who fears God is aware, (laughs) is aware of both the precious nature of both the giver and the gift which we have received and is zealous, is careful, is fearful 
to make sure that we receive its full effect. The fear. The fear is of wasting it or of disappointing him, of treating what is precious as though it is cheap. That's the fear. And that fear drives us toward a transformed life. We fear him who judges impartially and we fear that precious blood. All of this creates in us just a different, a different kind of love, right? A different kind of attitude towards how life works. The heart which fears God just beats differently to the heart that, that doesn't in a way where one can't comprehend the other. <laughs> uh, speaking beforehand of, of the new covenant that we now live in, uh, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel delivered God's message of what our lives would be like in Ezekiel 36, 27. Through him, God said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's a great way to put it. A fearful heart knows to be careful with God's holy rules. We don't stop at not sinning. We be careful. It's, it's a way of walking where we ensure as much as we can not to break anything important. It's a different way of viewing life. This is the sanctifying fear of God. Do you want to see it demonstrated in a prayer life? We can turn to Psalm 19. Describes it so well. I want you to notice a few things which we have discussed already today as we read Psalm 19. First, the psalmist is aware of their own frailty and the dangers of sin. The psalmist is also aware that the Lord redeems and rescues and so is turning to him to ask for help. And lastly, the psalmist loves the Lord and so wants to go past dealing with obvious sin alone but wants to live carefully. Psalm 9, we'll start from verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous Sins, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, do you hear a heart which fears the Lord in holiness? I hope you can. 
be careful to keep my statutes. <laughs> Ezekiel tells us will be the fruit of the Spirit. Some is praise, <laughs> even before then. Rescue me from presumptuous sins and hidden faults. The fear of God propels us towards holiness. I want to land all of this in, in two ways. I think I'm going to change the first one <laughs> as we go. The first application of this is for those of us who are Christians. Today, I want to call you to live carefully in the fear of God. I ask you, do you stop? Do, do you hesitate when deciding this or that part of your life is acceptable to God. We're not trying to create false guilt here, but rather genuine reflection. It is so easy to fall into the trap of assuming that because other people say a thing is okay, that it's okay. It is easy as Christians to live a normal life when so much of what our culture thinks of as normal is dishonoring to the blood. We'll skip that bit. <laughs> it is easy for us to take our moral cues from the unbelieving world but just because a thing is normal doesn't mean it is right. There is such a thing as presumptuous sin. Issues like this come up all the time. And the thing about them is that while they are newish, we, we might still have an instinctive awareness of the problem. But the longer they hang around, once they've been established for a generation, they start to seem normal even within the church. And it becomes very difficult for us to even realize, to even see that God is against certain things. Waiting for marriage before moving in together no longer seems quaint to the outside world. It seems dangerous. The practice of tithing, which has been normal in some way or another for most of human history, Abraham tithed. <laughs> is a bit scandalous now. Tell your mates at work about it and see what reaction you get. Throughout the history of God's people, there have been issues <laughs> where following God meant standing against the tide in ways that makes his people seem odd. But there was a decision that needed to be made. They didn't always get it right. Neither do we. And yet sometimes they did. For Moses, it was opposing the mistreatment of a slave by his own countrymen, which cost him his place in Pharaoh's household, even though his response to that situation was not a perfect one. Um, for the kings, at the time of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah was calling them not to make an alliance with Egypt in order to ensure the protection of their kingdom, an alliance which would have seemed perfectly normal in their day. It was the done thing. For Daniel, 
It was continuing to pray to Yahweh when the emperor forbade it. When he could simply have kept quiet, he instead prayed in front of an open window every day as he had previously been doing. For Nehemiah, it was not claiming his right to a banquet table like every other local ruler. For Peter and for Paul, it meant eating with the Gentiles in the sight of other Jews who thought that that was scandalous. A test which Peter faltered in. In Ephesus, it meant the burning of their magic scrolls which were worth years' worth of income instead of simply selling them. In Berea, it meant not assuming that what they heard was true until they had confirmed it in the Bible. These are examples of people walking in the fear of God. The fear of God causes us to live carefully and to not waste our lives by simply living like our neighbours. The fear of God submits all of the details and decisions of your life to God because He is precious and our conduct matters. Here's one way it might apply to us. Uh, We haven't mentioned this yet, but it's time, it's due. We all have one of these. A little demonic gateway living in your pocket. We are all, almost without exception, addicted to these. It is normal. It is not holy. How about this as an option? this, This is not going to be enforced. It's not going to be policed. This is an invitation to join us in what I would like to call Media Free March. (laughs) Imagine what will happen to your worship life four weeks without social media. How do you think that would affect your prayer, your holiness, your desires? Well, there's only one way to find out, really, isn't there? So I like mentioning this today, because what is it? It's the, the 25th of February. We've got four days of February left for you to like, go through that backlog of instant messages and reply to them all. You could just do a reply all, hey guys, I'm getting off the social media and do a boast before men, and away it goes to everybody in your address book. And then from the 1st of March to the 30 days of September, 31st of March, <laughs> we live like free people. I'm going to give it a go. I'll tell you if I fail. I invite you to participate with me. It's really easy to take our moral cues from the unbelieving world until things which are not normal seem normal. Here's the last application. At this point, I would like to speak to those of you who are with us today who are not yet Christians. Our passage today in in Peter contains some some pretty great promises that I don't want you to miss. As we've said earlier, the message of the Bible for all people is that there is something broken within our nature that makes us hostile to God. But the Bible also tells us that God has decided to rescue his enemies and to reconcile with them. The most important piece in understanding the Christian faith is that we do not 
behave in order to belong. We belong, and that causes us to behave. That's the substance of the whole thing. Peter spoke about being ransomed from our futile ways by the blood of Jesus. That's God's rescue plan for you. The blood of Jesus is the blood of the cross, the message of Easter. The message that Jesus' death on the cross was him offering himself as a sacrifice of atonement. That at the cross, the perfect, innocent son of God was punished in our place and for our sin. And so if you want to belong to God, it is not a thing that you have to earn in order to receive. Rather, it is a gift freely given by the giver, which you need to accept. The God of heaven wants to reconcile with you. He wants to adopt you into his family and to live with you as your God forever. He has gone so far as to offer up his unique son to make that reconciliation possible. And he is now inviting you to come in and to belong. And that means that you are very welcome in the presence of God. If you want to know how to do that, (laughs) how to belong before you behave, well, here is one example of how you might be able to begin. You can start by praying and telling God something like this. I've got it up on the screen here. Hopefully you can read that. And you could even pray this with me now. Express something like this to God. God in heaven, I believe that Jesus is your son and that his death on the cross was to purchase forgiveness for sin. I know that I need that forgiveness in order to be reconciled with you. And I ask that you would give that to me. I have nothing to offer you for this gift, but know that it comes from your grace, which I gladly accept. Come and rescue me and make me your child. I welcome you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. For the rest of us, let's pray. Oh, wow, Jesus, that precious blood. How highly it should be valued. How clearly it should be perceived by all that it has power and it alone. Lord, we need it. We want it. And through faith, we accept it. Jesus, we thank you and worship you today that you have offered yourself for me. That you have done what I could not and carried the burden of my sin. (laughs) Without you, I was a slave. I was imprisoned. was held in captivity 
by something which hated me and was destroying me and was me. (laughs) And you have set me free. You have released me from bondage to sin and filled me with your spirit and set me apart to live for and with you in your holy name. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would change our appetites, change what we love and desire. Would the deceitfulness of sin lose its palatability? Would it turn sour on our lips? Would those desires which are not pleasing to you give us no peace? And instead, Lord, would we delight in goodness? (laughs) Would we relish faithfulness? Would it be our joy to walk in your ways? Would we know them as a blessing, the blessing which they are? With the psalmist we pray, our God, declare us innocent of hidden faults and rescue us from presumptuous sins. Because in keeping your word, there is great reward. We pray this in the name of that Jesus, by whose precious blood we stand in your presence. Amen.